pray that you would just be in with each one of us. God, that you would work in our hearts as we study your word. Um, God, that you would reveal to us the things that maybe uh, we need to work on. And Lord, encourage us with just the truth of who you are and your character. And so, God, just uh, use me as a vessel this morning. We thank you for your word. In your name I pray. Amen. And so, uh, while these gentlemen come around, uh, I'm going to start us off by painting a picture as best I possibly can. It's one that many of you will be quite familiar with. Uh, as I start to go, you'll be like, been there, all right? Um, and so, uh, as we get ready to dive into chapter three, uh, just imagine um, a family <clears throat> in the home. You've got uh, parents, you've got, we'll just say one child right now, okay? Even though there might be more, we'll say one. And uh, the parents are asking the child to do something. Maybe it's a chore, okay? Maybe it's a chore. Um, and uh, this child is, let's just say, um, disobedient, okay? Doing everything they possibly can to avoid doing said chore. Because who wants to take the trash out or to clean the bathroom or to do these things? Uh, most people in their right minds don't enjoy doing those things, although... Maybe if you're a clean freak, it doesn't bother you, okay? Um, and so uh, with this, this disobedience, this refusal to do what mom and dad have asked, um, there come consequences for those things. And then we come back, and the parent comes back and asks a second time. And there's a second chance. There's a second opportunity. And the child responds by doing what they're asked, but maybe it comes with an eye roll or a shrug of the shoulders or with some sort of an attitude that implies, I still don't want to be doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Does that sound familiar to anybody in the room? Anybody as a parent or a, a child? No, anybody ever deal with that? Okay. It's just my house? Well, that makes me feel bad. Um, and that's the situation we walk into today as we hit Jonah chapter 3. Jonah has been given an opportunity. He's disobeyed. He's dealt with the consequences. And God's giving him a second chance. And we see his response today. And his response is obedience. But you can kind of gauge a little bit, especially as we get into chapter 4, how he really feels about it. Okay? And so uh, this is where we start. This is where we pick up in chapter 3. But what I want to let you know this morning is that Jonah is not... Uh, the star of this chapter. The, whole, the key phrase in the entire chapter is the first five words of chapter three. The word of the Lord. God's word, God's message is the most important part of this whole chapter. Okay? And so the main idea I'm going to give to you up front instead of making you search for it or wait, the main idea this morning is that God's word transforms lives. It's God's word that transforms lives. And we see it transform the lives of several different folks throughout this passage, okay? Um, the, the word of, of the Lord is powerful. I was thinking about this, and I said, you know, it, it is. It's the message that changes people, right? It's not the messenger. And so it's not you or I that get to change somebody's heart, that get to change somebody's actions, that get to change somebody's thoughts. That's the work of the Spirit. That's the work of God through his word doing these things. The only exception being Jesus, who was both messenger and message, because the word became flesh, right? He gets to be the exception to that, as he is to many things. 
Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word pierces the heart. It changes us. Remember back in Genesis, how does God create all things? Words, right? Through speaking. God created everything out of nothing with his words. Hebrews 11.3 says that by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Matthew 4, verse 4, tells us that God's word is life-giving. Isaiah 40, verse 8, tells us that the word of God is eternal. And so this main idea this morning is that God's word transforms lives. And we're going to look this morning at how it transformed the people of Jonah chapter 3, as it came to three different groups of people. With that said, let's read chapter 3. Um, in honor of the reading of God's word, I want to ask that you stand with me this morning as we read the word of God together. Uh, it's 10 verses, um, but I'd like to read that, so thank you all. I appreciate it. Uh, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now, Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. And when word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne he took off his royal robe, he put on sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth. And everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. And who knows, God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. And God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. And so God relented from the disaster he had threatened, with them, threatened them with, and he did not do it. That was the reading of God's word. You may be seated. This morning, we're going to see how three different folks respond to the message of God. That when the message hits their ears, how did they respond to it? And then in return, how does God respond to them? And so we find the first one in verses 1 through 3 with Jonah, okay? And so it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach the message that I tell you. And Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's commands. Did you notice that's different this time? It's different, right? So the command is there. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, and how does he respond? He responds with obedience. All right, he responds with obedience, and that's how Jonah responds this time. Just like in chapter one, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. But did you notice in chapter three, it says it came to him a second time, because God gave Jonah a second chance. A second chance to obey. And you notice God doesn't rub in his past actions in his face. It just says that it came to him a second time. The God we serve is a God of second, third, fourth, millionth chances. And he offers Jonah a mulligan. He offers him another opportunity here to do the right thing. 
And what does God ask him to do? Essentially the same thing that he asked him to do before. He asked him to go to the great city of Nineveh, preach the message that I tell you. Now the wording here is slightly different. It says the message I tell you. Chapter 1, verse 2, it says preach against it because their evil has come before it. And let's just be honest. Jonah heard God the first time. So he already knows exactly what it is. He knows that it's evil. And so Jonah is being given the opportunity. This sounds like opportunity of a lifetime, right? He's given the opportunity, the chance to go and tell a bunch of evil people uh, this bad news that they're about to go down. <laughs> to be the bearer of bad news. That's the opportunity that God is giving Jonah. Sounds like a good one. And so he gives Jonah this opportunity to be the bearer of bad news. If you've ever had that role before where you had to be the bearer of bad news, maybe in your job at work you had to be responsible for telling somebody they lost their job or something like that, it's never easy to be the bearer of bad news. And that's really what Jonah has to do what he has to do. And so God says, go to Nineveh, and he calls it a great city. The word great is used 14 times in the book of Jonah in four chapters, most of those in reference to the city of Nineveh, okay? Nineveh was a large city. It was one of the greatest cities in the world at the time. It's said that the walls there were 100 feet tall and thick enough that you could fit three chariots wide across them, okay? These were huge walls around the city, and on top of that, it said that there were 1,500 towers on top of this wall. And each of those extended another like 200 feet. Okay? It was huge. It was fortified. It was a great city by all accounts, at least based on what they would look at and say it was great, right? It was well built. And if you remember the past few weeks, Nineveh was evil, right? It was one of the most evil cities. It was host to Israel's enemies, who were also Jonah's enemies, right? And if you remember, uh, we talked about how in Genesis is the first mention of, of Nineveh, and it was built uh, by a, a, a man named Nimrod. And well, what does his name mean? His name means rebel. How ironic, right? Not ironic, intentional. So his name means rebel, and he builds a city that is full of rebellious people. And that's where Jonah is headed. The task that Jonah was given was, let's just say it was unenviable, it wasn't something most folks would desire to be given, right? And so Jonah is once again commanded to go to Nineveh to deliver a message to them. And I don't know about you, but I'd still be fearful that someone would hear the message and kill me at that point. Knowing their past, knowing what they do to folks, there is danger there. And so I was thinking about that, and I was like, you know, I almost wonder. I was trying to put myself in Jonah's shoes. I don't know if you ever do that with Bible characters as you read. Um, you ever try to put yourself in their shoes? Be like, I wonder what they were thinking right here. I started thinking about that. I was like, I wonder what Jonah was thinking. Maybe Jonah was thinking that his past experience maybe eliminated that fear a little bit because obviously God had changed his heart to obedience already. But I believe that if Jonah, Jonah may have had a peace about going this time, at least a little bit more than before, because if God wanted to let Jonah die, he would have just let him drown. You know, it's kind of that idea that maybe, maybe in Jonah's mind, God's not going to save me here to bring me all the way here so that it kills me here. And so I think maybe, maybe, this is, this is not, this is just me putting myself in his shoes. Maybe there was a little bit more of a peace than he had before. Maybe there wasn't, right? Maybe there wasn't. But there is this idea of protection that God has here. And so in verse 3, it tells us that he went to Nineveh this time, according to the word of the Lord. So that means when it says according to the word of the Lord, he did exactly what God told him. So for you and I, we go 
where God calls us, when he calls us, to do what he's called us to do. There's three parts to that. Where he calls us, when he calls us, to what he's called us to do. And that's what Jonah does. So Jonah, the runaway prophet, the man who to this point has shown little to no care for anyone besides himself, this guy that spent three days in the belly of the fish, has decided to obey. Now, based on chapter 4, still seems possible he did this reluctantly, but he obeyed nonetheless. And so the word of the Lord transformed Jonah's heart and led him to obedience. And then we get to the second group of people in verses 4 and 5, and that's the Ninevites. And here's what it says. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In 40 days Nineveh will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. See, this is interesting. The people hear a message that in Hebrew is only five words long. Okay? So maybe a couple more words as we read it in English. But in Hebrew, it was only five words long. And that's the message they hear, and it changed everything about them. It led them to belief. So they responded to God's word with belief. This message that Jonah delivered led them to believe. And so the message was simple. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished or overturned. What is significant about that message? seems rather short. Um, Many scholars actually assume there's more to the message than what we read here in verse 4. But based on what we have, doesn't it seem like something's missing in the message? Doesn't it seem like something's missing? Like, there's no mention of who is going to destroy them. There's no mention of their evil. There's no mention of a need for repentance. There's all these things that are missing based on what a prophet would normally be telling someone. It seems kind of interesting that that's the way that this plays out. And yet the message does mention several important things. So notice it mentions the term 40 days, right? This is significant for several reasons. The number 40 uh, was associated with testing and hardship that someone endures in order to become more spiritually aware. So with Noah, it rained 40 days, 40 nights. The Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus was tempted for 40 days. There's this number 40 that had significance because during those times, people were being tested. I would also suggest that 40 was important because it was a sign of God's grace. You notice God didn't send Jonah with a message that says you have 24 hours to turn this around. Right? He gave them a time frame because during that time frame he could actually see there is change happening here. Because God also understands that everything doesn't change overnight. And so he gives them this grace, this 40-day grace period. And offers that to them. But by giving them 40 days, he also gives them um, a little bit of an idea, maybe, of who the message was from, okay? And so think about this. If you have somebody that's coming to destroy you, do you think they're going to tell you when they're going to do it? Right? Think about like a battle. When am I going to attack? Well, I'm going to go tell these people that I'm going to attack on this day at this time. That makes no sense, right? And so, Uh, Nineveh, you have to assume, uh, and based on what we know, it's a great city, it's a huge city, there aren't very many folks that are going to overtake Nineveh. And so this idea that, guess what, this 40 days, this this idea that there's a timeline, that somebody says you're going to be destroyed in 40 days, helps them kind of eliminate some idea of who it could be and helps them recognize who it really was. Because if an enemy is going to attack, they're not going to tell you when it's going to happen. 
On top of that, because Nineveh was a great city, there weren't many folks that could overtake it. And so the options of who it could be are limited. So they would have had to assume that it was God. And because they are neighbors to Israel, you have to, I, I have to assume that they have heard of this God before, being right there next door, that they would have at least heard of who he was. And so with that in mind, it's possible they immediately knew it was from God. And guess what? When you know a message is from God, it changes everything, right? You can have two different people give you the same message, and you can take it completely differently based on the source, would you agree with that? You can take it completely differently based on the source. I can have somebody that tries to correct me in some way that I barely know, and I'll probably dismiss it. I can have somebody that's close to me, that has taken the time to get to know me, to love me, that can come to me with correction, and I can take a look at myself and be like, they're right. And I can take that way differently. The source matters. And this message comes from God. But why would they respond to this message with belief? What made them respond that way? Because if you read the message, doesn't it sound like it's just a message of doom and gloom? It's like, you will be destroyed. It's like, there's this promise here, you're going down. So at that point, I think most of us, if we're going to receive this message of, of judgment, um, this message that, hey, you're going down, you're going to die, you're going to be overtaken. Most of us would either probably live in denial or try to find a way out, maybe even fight back. This appears to be a message without hope. It comes across that way, at least to somebody who just reads it. The wording comes across like it's a done deal. You will be overturned. Now, what made them respond that way? Of course, God working in their hearts caused them to respond that way. It was God's word. But let's look at one other thing, because the word of the Lord, the message of God always contains hope. It always contains hope. See, does this message of salvation contain judgment? Absolutely. But it also contains love and hope. So where could they see hope in the message of, in 40 days, you will be demolished? Where can they see hope there? Well, you see the word overturned, the word demolished, has two different meanings. It has two different meanings. It's used in reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, so it is used as a term for destruction. But do you know what else it's used for? It's a term that has a second meaning that means transformed or changed. There's where their hope is. Yes, he could destroy us completely, just utterly wipe us out to where there's nothing left. He could also transform us. He could change us. And so there was the hope that they need. So they believed because within this message of doom, there was a message of hope. There was a chance to be rescued. And so they respond by belief and action. And notice this, and, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. Their response was immediate. And there's a couple of clues as to how that is. One is by the order of the words in the Hebrew uh, signifies and emphasizes the immediacy of their belief. But also because if you notice, it says Jonah was only one day in on a three-day trip. You guys catch that? It's like, it's a three-day journey for him to walk through all the streets of Nineveh, and he makes it in one day, and people believe. Like, that's not to say he doesn't continue for those other three days, but guess what happens? And we'll read about it here in just a moment. Um, the message spreads like wildfire. It spreads like wildfire around the city of Nineveh. It's crazy. The message of the Lord, this message of judgment and hope. The message is the power to transform a heart from unbelief to belief. 
Notice it says, from the greatest to the least, the rich and the powerful, all the way down to the poor servants, all believed. Y'all, this was a mass revival is what this was. An entire city believed in Jesus. Well, Jesus hadn't come yet, but you know the idea. Believed in God at that point. That's crazy. Can you imagine if our entire city believed in God? As the result of people taking the message to them. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do. There was this revival. The entire city came to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was incredible. And only through God, only through the power of his word is such a miracle possible. And so this message transformed the Ninevites. And then we arrive at our third person or group. And I do want you to notice I'm not intentionally skipping or ignoring the fasting and sackcloth, but I'm going to hit on it here with the third one because it's also referenced here, okay? The king responds with repentance. I'm sorry, my words might have gone crazy there. The king responds with repentance, okay? And so we get to verses 6 through 9, and we read about the king. When word, word, the message that was delivered, the word of God reaches the king, He got up from his throne, he took off his robe, he put on sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. He sat in ashes. See, a king responding this way hits a little different. And it's possible that the people before this responded in part because of the decree that we read about, starting in verse 7. Um, But we aren't 100% sure of the order of these things. But what we see is repentance. So what does this repentance look like for the king? The first thing that we see is that this repentance takes humility, okay? Notice what the king does. He steps off of his throne and out of his royal garb. Did you notice that? He's giving up his throne. He's giving up his, his royalty at this point. He trades them in for, a tie, uh, for, for new garments of sackcloth. And sitting from the throne into sitting in a pile of ashes. Do you see what's happening here? He, he changed, he switched seats, he switched his clothes. It wasn't a case of changing into something more comfortable, by the way. Like right before you go to bed, I'm gonna go put my jammies on. It ain't like that. He's not changing into something that's gonna make him more comfortable, he's changing into something that's gonna make him more uncomfortable. Okay, because what sackcloth was, was a coarse garment made from goat's hair. It was really itchy, scratchy, uncomfortable thing to be worn, and yet that's what he switched to. And it was worn as a sign of repentance, of mourning, of grief. It was a reminder of their sinfulness, because guess what? Our sinfulness should make us uncomfortable. Our sinfulness should make us uncomfortable. And so the king then goes and he sits in ashes, which is a far cry from the throne that he was sitting on before. See, ash would accompany sackcloth in times of national disaster or repentance. And it would illustrate ruin and destruction. See, these sackcloth and ashes were external symbols of an inward state. And they demonstrated repentance and grief and humility. See, the king mourned the evil that he and his people had been committing. He recognized that they were wrong. It's interesting because the king had a position of authority. He was the leader. He was the ruler of this evil people that had been a part of the horrific acts that had been committed. And here, what does he do? He steps off his throne. He humbles himself. He recognizes his sin and the sin of his people. And he acknowledges that there's one greater than him. That's a big deal. 
And then we get to verse 7, and what does he do? He makes this decree because repentance is for all. It wasn't just him. Everyone needed to repent. And so he issues this decree. Every person, an animal, must fast, mourn in sackcloth, and cry out to God. Is that not interesting to anybody that he includes the animals in that? (laughs) By the way, animals, you don't get to eat or drink either. And you get to also be clothed in sackcloth. It's interesting. It's interesting. And the reason isn't because the king thinks that the animals themselves are sinful and need to repent. Okay, that's not specifically the reason, although they could have been used for evil at certain points because these people would do all sorts of crazy things. But what it was, was it was an acknowledgement of the severity of the situation. Because the fact is that if the people weren't spared, the animals weren't going to be either. And so it was an acknowledgement of the severity of the situation. And, God, and, and, and the king, in this decree, he tells them all to call out earnestly, to call out mightily, to call out with strength and with force to God. They're to be praying, seeking forgiveness from sin, recognizing their wrongdoing, and the fact that only God can save them. This sackcloth, ashes, and fasting was to go hand in hand with prayer. So they were to spend constant time in prayer. And since God gives them 40 days, it's highly likely that they wouldn't know if he relented for 40 days and so that they would have done this for 40 days. It's highly likely. And then we see something else in verse 8, that true repentance involves turning from evil. And we see this in verse 8 when he tells them, each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. The king understands the outward signs of repentance with mourning. Uh, because of what sackcloth and ashes are, now he's getting at the heart of the matter. That our hearts have to be turned from sinful behavior to behavior that honors God. You know, we, we use that as part of our definition of repentance, right? Repentance is turning the other way and walking. And you notice throughout the entire book of Jonah, the only times that that, that word for repent, that, ter- that word for turn is used, is it's used three or four times in chapter three, and that's it. And God wants us to turn from the evil that we're doing and to go towards him. And I think we get it wrong sometimes. We may say a prayer or we may call out to God to forgive us for sinful behavior. We give the appearance of caring about our sin. But ultimately, there are times we have no desire to turn from our sinful ways. But true repentance submits to change in our hearts and our actions. So the king is telling them, we have to live differently. Our lives need to reflect the character of the God that we are calling out to. And notice that he's specific. Each one has to turn from his own sin. Did you notice that? See, we can mourn and we can grieve the sin of other people, but ultimately it's your own sin that makes you worthy of destruction and judgment. And so we need to repent and turn from our own sin. And then we see something else here in verse 9. That repentance recognizes God's sovereignty. And this may be my favorite part of the passage. The king says, who knows? (laughs) Maybe God will do it. Maybe he won't. He uses that term maybe. He's like, who knows? There's an uncertainty here. In other words, there is no guarantee for them that by turning from sin that God is going to relent. You see, the king understands the significance of their sin, but he also understands that God ultimately is in control of making the decision. The king, the one with authority over the people, recognizes God as the one with authority over their salvation or over their destruction. 
He says we can do these things, we can fast, we can clothe ourselves in sackcloth, we can pray, but ultimately it's up to God because we deserve to be destroyed. And he recognized that. He recognizes God's in control. He isn't assuming God's mercy upon them. He's acknowledging that they're sinful, that they're deserving of destruction, but that God in his mercy can do what he wants. God's in charge. And so they do these things, fast, dress in sackcloth, call out to the Lord with no promise that God will relent. But there is a chance, and they think that chance is worth taking. See, the Ninevites know that the God who made this threat has the power to carry it out and the freedom to do as he pleases. The king doesn't presuppose God's grace, but is hopeful to receive it. For you and I, we aren't in the same situation. See, these pagan people approached this with no assurance of receiving God's grace. But we know as believers in Jesus that God will offer his grace to us when we come before him with a genuinely repentant and sorrowful heart. But we are also called to not continue in sin, to take advantage of God's grace. He's gracious, absolutely. Should we live a life with a lack of repentance that tests that grace? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. See, repentance is an ongoing admission of our sin. It's an ongoing recognition that his grace is greater than our sin is. Even today, the book of Jonah has great meaning for the Jewish people. It's considered such an important message on repentance, this entire book, that the book of Jonah is read every year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, a day when the Jews confess their sins to God. They still recognize this as a significant writing significant events on repentance and read it on that day every year. See, we must recognize the significance of repentance, of our sins, of God's grace. Now, let's notice this. All of these things they're doing are for a purpose. I think we get into these habits sometimes, and I say we because I know I do. This isn't a group of people that says, I'm sorry in hopes of avoiding terrible punishment. Anybody ever been there and done that? Mom or dad are coming. I'm sorry. Maybe they won't do it. But then you have no desire. You're going to go back and do that same thing again in just a minute. As long as you say you're sorry. It's empty words. That's not what we see here. It's not a situation where we say we're sorry, but we don't really mean it. Like, it's different for me to tell one of my kids, you need to apologize to your brother, or you need to apologize to your sister, because they'll do it but they don't care, <laughs> right? There's something different there. That's not what we see here from all of these people, from the Ninevites, from the king. It's not an empty, I'm sorry. They recognized their sinful ways. They were weeping. They were making themselves uncomfortable. They weren't making excuses or blaming others. They were humbly approaching God and calling out to him earnestly. When's the last time you or I weeped over our sin like that? I can tell you, it's not as often as it should be for me. Both the king and the people repent. And then we arrive in verse 10 and we see God's response. How does God respond to the repentant heart? He responds by offering grace and mercy. It's what he does. It says God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with and he did not do it. He responds by offering his grace and his mercy. You see, in line with God's consistent character, he withholds destruction of those that are repentant. 
Notice it says God saw their actions and he relented. But let's be honest, it wasn't the physical actions that were of most importance. It wasn't the fasting specifically. It wasn't the clothing in sackcloth. You notice it says that they had turned from their evil ways. That's what was most important because that signified the heart. We can look real good doing stuff on the outside but have a dirty, nasty heart. And he could see their heart because they had turned from their evil ways. He saw what they had stopped doing, that evil, and relented on his disaster. That's what God was looking for. If they hadn't turned from their wickedness, their fasting and mourning would have been pointless. God saw among the people a general conviction of sin and a general resolution not to return to it. And he saw that change lived out over a number of days and knew it to be sincere. And so just like the king that we read about here that says and acknowledges that he deserves destruction, you and I do too. But God in his mercy gives us an opportunity to believe and to repent. See, some people believe that God changes his mind here. But this wasn't a situation of God changing his mind. It was God remaining faithful and consistent in his character to show mercy to the undeserving who believe, repent, and call on his name. You see, God can't change his mind because God is, is, is unchanging. And so he sends this message through the prophet of threatened judgment, but a threat always has two intended outcomes based on what the person chooses. Both receiving judgment and avoiding judgment are contained within the words of the warning. And so he threatens judgment as a God who is slow to anger and abounding in mercy. And so inherent within this message that Jonah delivers is that if you change your ways, if you repent, if you yield to me, if you will bow to me and believe in me, then I will spare you. Jeremiah 18 gives us this same idea. Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8. Here's what it says. At one moment, I might announce concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will uproot, tear it down, and destroy it. However... If that nation about which I have made the announcement turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the disaster I had planned to do to it. See, this is God's character in action. Yes, we serve a just God, but we also serve a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God that desires that all people come to him, like 1 Timothy chapter 2 says. And so God looked at the sin of the people and his grace was greater than that. He didn't ignore it, but he saw their heart and he offered mercy. God's response should make us speechless. It should make us love him all the more. His response to your sin, to my sin, was to provide a means of salvation for us. Y'all, he didn't have to. We deserve death. We deserve judgment. We deserve eternal separation from him. But he looks at us and says, those people are messed up, but they're my messed up people. They're mine. Right? It's like when someone speaks poorly of your family, you defend them, right? Even though you know they're crazy too. I know they ain't right, but they're mine, and I love them. I'm going to do this for them anyway. See, God desires to see our, us as broken people restored. And so this perfect, unchanging God provides the way of salvation. The one that we have wronged offers up his most precious gift, his one and only son, on our behalf. The one we have wronged is the one who pays the price for us. How backwards is that? But thank God for it. 
and his mercy and his grace and his love, he rescues us and he transforms us into the image of his son. It's God and his word that have the power to transform lives. It took Jonah from unrepentant disobedience to obedience. It took the Ninevites from an evil, violent lifestyle to one of praying to and believing in the God of Israel. And it took a pagan king, a guy who was rich and powerful, and the message of God brought him off of his throne and onto his knees in repentance. That happens not because of anything that humans did, but because of who God is and because of how powerful his word is. And so God's word comes to three different people or groups here in this passage. It transforms each of them. So where do we go from here? Here's the application. It's quite simple. And so I want to encourage you uh, as, I, as I read these to uh, consider these as we close and as we pray. All right. There's three applications here. First, you've got to believe in Jesus for salvation. If you're here, you do, haven't done that. You have never made that decision. You're still trusting in yourself or something else to save you from the consequences of your sin. You need to turn from that. You need to make that decision today to follow Jesus. The second thing is to repent for all sin. Y'all, I put the word all in there for a reason. Sometimes I think because we have levels of sin in our minds of what's worse and what's, what's this is minor, then we kind of ignore the minor stuff. Y'all, we're called to repent for all sin, all of our own sin. It should bring us to our knees because it's our sin that took Jesus to the cross. It's all of those things that we did, and we're called to repent for it. And then the third thing is to preach the word in all situations. See, the word is a message of both hope and judgment. And our sin separates us from God. It sends us to hell without the proper payment. And yet Jesus paid that for us, living perfectly, dying horrifically, being raised gloriously. And all we have to do is believe the message of Jesus. But we have to preach it in all situations. Jonah's situation wasn't comfortable, but it was necessary. And he obeyed and preached the word as he was called to. God's word Changes, transforms, allows us to be people of belief, repentance, and obedience. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your time, this, this time that you've blessed us with this morning, your word um, for just the truth that it offers, as always. God, we love you. We thank you that you've given us your spirit, because God, it's the power of your spirit at work in us that transforms us into your image, God. It's the powerfulness, the truth, of your word that can change a heart. God, I pray that it would change our hearts today, that it would. It would make us cognizant of our sin. It would make us aware of how steep the consequences of our sin are. God, that it would bring us to our knees in repentance. And God, that we would follow you in obedience at all costs.